0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to ToledoCalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Well, good morning, Calvary. Hey, so good to see you today. Welcome to those of you in the room as well as those of you joining us online. Thanks for taking the time to do this. I want to say thanks to Pastor Bennell for a great word last week. Wouldn't you agree? And... Uh, Look, if you weren't able to join us online or weren't here last week, jump out there and uh, watch last week's message on joy. It is a game changer. Happy 4th of July. And uh, I think it was uh, one patriotic person in the back. I think that that it was 2010 was the last time we had a 4th of July on a Sunday. Isn't that interesting? Because we have like Easter on Sunday every year, don't we? And uh, so it's, it's funny how those things kind of fall. Today, I, at the risk of uh, maybe breaking out into song, I'm proud to be an American. Anybody else? And so thankful. I've been privileged to travel enough to a lot of beautiful and wonderful places But uh, I'll I'll be honest, whenever I travel internationally, I have buried in my memory bank the smell of the parking garage at the Detroit airport. (laughs) (laughs) And it is one of my favorite smells in the world because it means I'm home. And, uh, And I'm thankful for the place that I get to call home, our freedom to worship, Um, the religious liberty that we have, the heritage of faith that we have. Next week, we're gonna start a new series of messages. We're actually gonna do, uh, and I don't know that I've ever really done this before, we're gonna do a deep dive for several weeks into some of the different Psalms. And uh, so I hope you'll join us for that as we jump into that. Today, I wanna do something a little bit different though. We're we're gonna take a little bit of a different look. Because it's the 4th of July, I wanna take a, a look at a moment in our religious history as a nation. So um, for those of you that loved history class in high school, (laughs) this is where you check out, I suppose, right? No, don't, 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 because we're going to do a bit of a history lesson today. And before we do that, though, before we even get started, I want to I want to give you two myths about American history. Like there's probably more than this, but two that come to mind and maybe set the stage for where we're going today as we talk about this concept uh, that I want to look at from our religious history as a nation. Two myths about American history. Here's here's myth number one: history is boring. Myth number one: history is boring. Can I get an amen? <laughs> look, I understand why some people feel that way. First semester of college. I'm 18 years old, away from home for the first time. I go to my very first class: Western Civ, study of Western civilization at 7.25 a.m. in the morning. And I was like, what sin did I commit to get this as a punishment? Like teacher was the nicest guy in the world, but he had just one tone and it was like low and slow and at 7.25 it was not at all helpful. And that was one, honestly one of the worst classes I took in my collegiate experience. Cause it was just like, oh, this is terrible. I hate history. And then the next year, I had another history requirement. So I signed up for an American history class. I remember going in and fully aware that this is going to be the class I'm going to hate this semester. And then the teacher walked in. He was all a five foot tall. Now, I don't know how old he was, but to this 19-year-old kid, he had to be at least 100, right? He just... And then he began to not tell us about dates and names and treaties and details he told us stories and his stories taught us lessons and as he told us stories and it taught us lessons he drew something out of history that i had never had a teacher do before and i realized there's more to this history thing than it just being boring history comes alive when you embrace the story like when you realize there's something there more for you to learn it's not just facts details dates and numbers There's a story that's there. Have you ever heard the phrase, history repeats itself? It does. (laughs) And there's things that I can learn from the past that will help me as I go into the future and even as I live my life today. That's not just an American history principle. That's a biblical principle. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, the reason we have the Old Testament is it helps us to know the lessons that we learned from the Old Testament so we can live them out in our New Testament life. And so biblical history, American history, whatever you call it, when you embrace the story and you learn the lessons, there's something really valuable there for us that we can learn from. So today, I hope we do that. And one of the things I hope you'll see in the big picture of this is that history is ultimately his story. <laughs> like everything about history points us to who God is and how he works in our lives. And so when you, when you read those Old Testament stories that sometimes seem boring, It's important to look back and go, what is really happening here? Because there's something that God wants me to learn from this. So the first myth that maybe we'll dispel real quick is that history is boring. Here's the second one. Myth number two, today is the worst it has ever been. (laughs) Have you heard people say that? This is the darkest time in our history. Things have never been worse. It's so bad right now. And look, I don't want to minimize it. We have a lot of challenges as a nation, do we not? Like if you look at our politics, new new challenges with technology, we live in a culture that is pushing aside morality. If you have spiritual concerns about our country right now, you're right to. Like we live in challenging times. But if you're gonna say this is the worst it's ever been, there's some historians who would debate you on that. Like, like, if you look back, we went through an actual revolution. Remember that? <laughs> there was a civil war. Two world wars began the last century. Vietnam, I wasn't around for the 60s, but it sounds like it was pretty trippy. <laughs> right, the reality is we've had some tough times as a nation, and if you ask historians about it, One of the seasons that many historians will say may have been our darkest time, corporately, nationally, were the early 1800s. If you think of what happened in those first few decades of the 1800s, we had just come out of eight years of war as a nation. And even though we emerged as a a new country, as a free country, those superpowers, England, France, that both fought us and helped us, were waiting offshore for us to stumble. All they needed was to see one crack in our foundation, and they were gonna try to come in and overtake this new country. So we had a constant threat of war. Commerce internationally was hugely important to our economy, but every time our ships went out, we encountered pirates in the Atlantic and terrorists in the Mediterranean. We were near bankruptcy as a nation. We had a real estate collapse. We were facing plagues and famine, and there was a national doubt on whether or not this American experiment was even gonna make it. And do you know who was asking it? The Founding Fathers. Many of them were saying, did we do the right thing? Is this thing gonna work? There was a reign of terror in France that led to much social unrest in our country. Universalism had come in, and many ideas from the Enlightenment were shaking our faith, there was political rancor, and none of you will will be able to understand this really, but they had a a really nasty election in 1800. (laughs) Adams and Jefferson going at it, it was vicious. It affected the whole country. We don't think of it this way, but there was a sexual culture in our country in that time that was anything but moral, and all of that on top of a national evil of slavery If we want to talk about dark times, the early 1800s, they they kind of meet the criteria. And it was into that season of time that the, the favor of God, the breath of God, blew a fresh wind on our nation. And in that period of history, we have what is often referred to as the second great Awakening. Anybody ever heard of that? Like we, we hear that term. It was a religious revival, an awakening that we refer to as the second great awakening. Now, historians will debate like when it actually kinda, you block this out. Um, Some people say it was actually two different revival movements. One they call the Second Great Awakening. Sometimes you'll hear the later half of it called the, the, uh, the, um, the, the, uh, the General Awakening. But we're gonna just use this large term as the Second Great Awakening to talk about 1800 to 1840. So that's about the period of time that we're looking at today, 1800 to 1840. Here's a trick question. Do you know why they call it the Second Great Awakening? Because there already was a first one, (laughs) right? So the First Great Awakening happened in the mid-1700s before the American Revolution. And this was a similar time when there was a move of God that really changed the climate and the churches in our nation. One of the leaders of that First Great Awakening, mid-1700s, was a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Anybody ever heard of him? He's he's known as one of our great theologians as a nation, Jonathan Edwards. Maybe just kind of park that in your memory for a little while, because we're gonna come back to his name in a little while, Jonathan Edwards. And then after that first great awakening, we go into the Revolutionary War. We come out of the Revolutionary War, kind of this new country. And then in the early 1800s, 1800 to 1840, we have what we refer to as the second great awakening. Why talk about it? Mark Knoll is one of the leading Christian historians in, in our nation today, and here's what he said. He said the Second Great Awakening was, quote, the most influential revival of Christianity in the history of the United States. Can I be honest? I didn't know that much about it. And if it's that influential, it'd probably be good to learn something. So we began to look at this, and, and maybe the best place to start is with this word right here, revival, because it's kind of a loaded word. Like when we use the word revival, everybody's kind of got their own little definition of what that means, of what what that looks like. Because for some of us, when we say revival, we think about it like an extended season of services. Like like we're gonna have revival services. And the more you have, the better. Can I get an amen? There's running and jumping and craziness. And if you didn't get a quiver in your liver, were you even there, right? That's just kind of the idea behind it. And yet, revival has something more to it than that. It's not just just that definition of, boy, I had a feel-good spiritual emphasis service. There's so much more to it. Um, In their book on the, the greatest revivals in history, Elmer Towns and Douglas Porter give this definition of what we would call an awakening or revival. An extraordinary work of God in which Christians repent of their sins and they become intensely aware of his presence in their midst. And they manifest a positive response to God in renewed obedience to the known will of God, resulting in both a deepening of their individual and corporate experience with God and an increased concern to win others to Christ. Let's all memorize that together. Okay, class, it will be on the test. (laughs) Great definition because it hits a lot of the high points, but there's a lot of words there. So if we're, gonna, if we're gonna sum it up, to be honest, because revival is such a loaded word, I, I personally prefer the word awakening. And here's maybe a definition. An awakening occurs when what seems to be dead is made alive again. An awakening is when what seems to be dead is made alive again. Now I know some of you are sitting there and, and you're going, those fireworks were late last night. I didn't know I was coming to church for a history lesson. Why are we talking about this? Because here's what I wanna propose to you. I propose that our nation needs an awakening again. Look, I'm not saying the things we do aren't important, but at the end of the day, politics and politicians and legislation and culture and entertainment can only do so much, what we need is a touch from God in our hearts. And when you look at the, the rhythm of history in our nation, if we do not come to a place with repentance and expectation where we ask God to do something new in our nation, I'm not sure what the future of this nation is. We need an awakening. Agreed? So if we need that, if a move of the Spirit of God is the only answer to where we find ourselves as a nation, what do we learn from history? So we're going to go back, and what I want to do is just give you four quick snapshots from the the second great awakening, and just kind of track with me here. Some of you history buffs, you're like, oh, I'm drooling over this. Some of you are like, I didn't come for this. Just track with me for, for a few moments. Don't touch that dial if you're watching online. Just track with me. I wanna show you four great awakening truths we need to experience today. Things that you see happen in that second great awakening that I believe we need to experience today. Here's the first one. We need an awakening of hope. Number one, we need an awakening of hope. Look, we've already talked about how, how dark it was in so many ways, what a difficult time it was in the early 1800s, but we haven't talked about the church yet. Let me tell you about the church Historians estimate that less than 10% of the American population regularly attended church in the 1790s. Think about that for a moment, because that probably challenges the image you have. I know it did the one I have in my brain. Less than 10% of the American population regularly attended church in the 1790s, which is not what I think about, because anytime I think about the past, I think about Little House on the Prairie. Anybody else? This might not even be the same time period, but that's what I come to, it comes to my mind. There's mom and pa gathering them up, we're going to church on Sunday. But that's not what was happening. In the 1800s, less than 10% of the American population was regularly attending church. See, in many ways, we had this new identity as a prosperous nation, and what happens so many times is when you begin to prosper, it's easy for you to forget about God. At the same time, enlightenment ideas from Europe were coming and as they came with these ideas of deism, which, which is the, the kind of concept that there is a God, but he's kind of the clockmaker. He just kind of winds things up and then lets it go. He's absent in our lives. Ideas from like Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson were causing a decline in Christian thought during that time. And so in many ways, not only was it politically dark and culturally dark, it was a very spiritually empty, cold time. And it was into that time that the great awakening brought hope. Can I tell you what people I think need today more than anything else? Is <laughs> hope. We have called, we have been called to be agents of hope. And here's what I want you to see that's really important. We have a tendency that when things are bad, to immediately go to, oh, it's never been this bad before. Oh, things are so bad. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how this is going to go. And can I tell you, when things are at their worst, God can bring an awakening. So many times it's in the moments where we despair that God is able to breathe new life into the situation. He can change things. And in those moments when you have a tendency to want to give up, to kind of wring your hands, and to think there's no hope for our country, or think there's no hope for the church, or think there's no hope for your loved one, remember those are just the moments when our God has proven in history that he's able to bring an awakening. And in a world world that needs hope, shouldn't we be the first people to bring it? Hope awakens us in such a powerful way. I've had some really good conversations with, with folks in the last service, even some of you today, um, about how much you enjoyed the fireworks last night. Anybody go to the fireworks? Okay, cool. Anybody have the neighbor bring the fireworks to you last night? Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. A story earlier this week that ended up in the news of a family in South Carolina whose neighbors decided to bring the fireworks to them. And they have a dog that they love named Raja, and they love Raja, and Raja does not love fireworks. So when the neighbors started shooting them off, the dog took off and that dog is fast and they tried to chase her down and could not. And so for hours afterwards, the owners looked all over their South Carolina neighborhood trying to find their beloved dog and never could. And they were devastated and they were desperate. And really they got to a point where they lost hope. And they said, we don't know what to do. And they just went home and decided to call it a night, and they'd try again in the daylight. Heartbroken, they collapsed in their bed, fell asleep, till three in the morning, and the doorbell rang. And they were like, three in the morning? That's really weird. Our our doorbell doesn't ring at three in the morning. They had one of those video camera doorbells. Do you know what I'm talking about? So they checked it to see, and this is the image they saw. That's Raja. (laughs) The dog came home and rang the doorbell with its snout just nose right on the bell. They don't know how she learned to do it, but she did. Now that's what I call an awakening of hope. Amen, right? There was something that came to them and brought them hope. Now I know that's just kind of a silly story, but do you realize you have that same potential? You have been called to desperate people to bring them an awakening of hope. And oftentimes, you know when God wants to use you? When things are at their worst. One of the first things we learned from the second great awakening is what we need right now in our world is an awakening of hope. The second principle we can pull from that, that season of history is this. Number two, we need a, an awakening of prayer. Number two, we need an awakening of prayer. Here, here's what happened at the beginning of these days in the 1790s. Churches began to pray. They saw the desperate situation the nation was in, and so they began to pray. Churches in New England, and you can trace stories of what happens there. One of the the really interesting stories happened in what we would call the frontier during that time. So if you think about it, even even Ohio, if you think about that time, this was just wilderness, right? We're we're talking about the frontier. So especially Methodist and Baptist churches were beginning to grow during that season of time and to expand out. Have you ever heard the term a circuit-riding preacher? You ever heard that term? That's what was happening during that time. The Methodists would send out these these ministers who would ride their horses and they would go in a circuit from town to town to town to town to town. town. So they were circuit riding and they were preaching as they would go and the gospel was going out into the the frontier, into these wilderness areas. One place in particular was in Kentucky. Nothing Kentucky at that season of time. There was no town in the Kentucky region in that part of the country, more than 2,000 people. There was a pastor named James McCready and he asked his church to pray. He says, what if we believe if God could do something unique and special in the life of our church? So specifically, he said, would you pray on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings? That God would do something in our services. That God would do something through our church. That God would do something through your lives. And this church began to pray. Now, we can can chart the story. Let me take you kind of to the end of the story. It ended in what we would call, actually, it began in what we would call the Cane Ridge Revival. The Cane Ridge Revival. One of the people there took a picture on their iPhone 11, and here it is. The Cane Ridge Revival, literally in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, and they had these services that happened there. They estimate—remember, you, you've got a frontier population—they estimate that somewhere between ten and twenty-five thousand people would come out for those services. That during that pe- period of time, three thousand people gave their lives to Christ, and that was just the beginning. Like it, like rippled out from there and impacted more and more lives. Why? Because the church began to pray. And when they did, God did something sovereign. God did something special. He did something unique. Here's what I don't want you to forget the prayers of today set the stage for the miracles of tomorrow. Sometimes we just see something and we go, can that ever be awakened? Can God ever do anything with this? And not realizing that the prayers we pray today are planting seeds, they're setting the stage, they're paving the way for the miraculous things that God wants to do tomorrow. So you might be praying today for awakening, maybe an awakening that you might never see. But it's your prayers today, that are gonna pave the way for what God wants to do in the future. And know this when you pray. I think two things kinda happen, especially when we pray these kind of prayers. One. When we pray these kind of prayers, it puts us in tune that the Holy Spirit might wanna work in and through our lives. Like we're aware of places where he might wanna bring an awakening. We're aware of places where he might wanna use you to speak words of life. We're aware of those things. And also, when we're praying, I think it helps us to be more open to the fact that God wants to do the unexpected. If I was gonna plan a great revival, I would not do it in the middle of nowhere Kentucky in the early 1800s. Wouldn't you look for a crossroad? It would be awesome to to do it somewhere where the word could spread, where where people were able to kind of communicate that, where you could gather more and more people. But God said, yeah, that's cool. But you know where I think I'm gonna start? I'm gonna start in the middle of nowhere because then they'll know that I did it. And oftentimes, realize this, you might have an idea of how things should go or what God should do in your life, but as you pray and ask him to be at work to awaken things in your life, he will do the unexpected, and he does it in a way that you might not have planned, but because there's something special he wants to do. Here's what I've learned. Ministry is often about interruptions. Yeah. Like when you read through the Gospels, you don't usually see where Jesus had his, his, all his miracle appointments planned in his iPhone before he left the house. Usually, he went out, said, Holy Spirit, use me. Do something today. And when God brings those interruptions, those unexpected places, those unexpected things, that's often where he works and does special things in our lives. So my challenge to you, would you start praying with me, maybe Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, that in our services, that in our church, through God's people, he would bring an awakening to our world, to Northwest Ohio, to our nation. Because we need an awakening of hope. We need an awakening of prayer. Let me, let me hit you with a third one, number three. We need an awakening of belief. We need an awakening of belief. What, what do you mean by belief, Chad? One of the places where things were so kind of dark and desperate spiritually during that time in particular was on our college campuses. Because during that period of time, as we mentioned, enlightenment ideas had come in, and so rationalism and all these other kind of philosophies and thoughts had pushed aside the truths of God's word. Morality was basically gone in the life of the American student. In the colleges, it was disastrous. Many of these colleges had been founded for Christian purposes, many of them for the training of ministers, and in their place now, they'd become centers of skepticism, it was rare that you would hear a Christian message. It was even more rare that you would find a Christian student who was willing to profess their faith. The idea was if you, if you led a group on a campus, you would publish the minutes of your meetings. Like you would put those out there so people knew what happened. But many of the Christian groups wouldn't because they didn't want other people to know that they were Christians for fear of persecution or, or mockery. Many of these colleges, there, there was like a, a, a mock communion service that was done kind of to just jest at Christianity. And it was a dark, dark time in our college campuses. Into that stepped a guy named Timothy Dwight. Timothy Dwight, am going to show you a picture of him here. He was a politician, he was a scholar, and he was a theologian. And he became the president of Yale College at that time. We would know it as Yale University, but at Yale College, and when he got there, he was shocked to find very few Christians and he was shocked to find that Christianity wasn't even discussed or communicated. And so he began to do something no one expected. He started to have like question and answer sessions. He would do debates with the students. And he'd let them ask him questions about his faith. And he began to talk to them about what he believed. And how the Bible was the word of God. And how God existed. And that God had a purpose for their lives. And what they had ridiculed before they started to listen to in a whole new way. Why? I think three reasons. One, because what he believed led to great passion in his heart. He really believed it, so he lived it. Second, that same belief, that awakening of belief in him, caused him to have a truth that he stood for. In a world where these students, uh, truth was just shaky. Truth wasn't even a real thing. Truth, they were longing for something that was true. Sound familiar? And his belief led him to teach them what was true. They said of him that he taught the teachings of their forefathers in the language of their professors. That he was able to communicate the old gospel message in a new life-giving way. The, The third thing that was so impactful was not only his passion and truth, but his belief led him to live a life of character. He didn't just preach at them. These students, and this was unusual for them to feel towards leaders in authority, these students began to respect him. They saw how much he cared. And his character won their respect in a powerful way so that in 1802, there was a revival on the campus of Yale College. And where there were very few Christians, during that year, a full third of the student body made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They had been an institution that was largely for the training of ministers, and yet the four years before, there were only 13, it's much smaller at that time, granted, but there were only 13 students that went out into ministry. After the revival, there were 69. Like, there was this massive change and shift that took place during that time, not just at Yale, but in the community around the college, and then in universities and colleges all throughout the United States, because one man was willing to say, I'm going to let what I believe change the way that I live. Know this, we are called to be a voice of belief in a culture of disbelief. God has called us not to just hide what we know and who we are. He hasn't called us to be jerks. (laughs) He's called us to tell our story. He's called us to live out his truth. He's called us to show people the love of Jesus. This is Hugely important. Here's one of the things that's really interesting about this story. Do you remember Jonathan Edwards? Do you remember that name I mentioned earlier? One of the, I mentioned it just before you fell asleep. Jonathan Edwards, one of the leading theologians of the first great awakening. Timothy Dwight, the president of Yale College, is his grandson. Now what's interesting here is grandpa was a part of that first revival that so changed and shaped the religious landscape of our nation, and by the time his grandson is a leader, our nation has largely, completely turned away from those truths, which highlights for us a sobering truth that the faith of the last generation does not guarantee the faith of the next. Just because one generation believes doesn't mean the next one will. That's not an American history lesson. That's just truth. Watch this, Judges chapter 2, verse 10, this is in the Old Testament, it says that after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Gathered to their ancestors is a nice way of saying they had their funerals, right? So after, after what whole generation? Well, the generation they're talking about is, is, is both the generation that were slaves in Egypt and then were set free. Moses led them into the wilderness and then Joshua led them into the promised land. This is one of the most significant stories in the Old Testament. When that generation had died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Are you kidding me? This is just a generation away or two generations away from one of the greatest stories that gets celebrated all throughout scripture. And yet somehow by the time that generation grew up, they didn't know who the Lord was or what he had done. That's why passing our faith along from generation to generation is so important, so significant. That's why we put an emphasis at Calvary on our children's ministry and our youth ministry because this matters. One of the biggest things that I've seen, if you want to pass your faith from one generation to another, is the same thing that got the students' attention when Timothy Dwight was preaching to them. You can't just talk about it. You gotta live it. Do you live what you believe? Can your faith be seen in your life? Timothy Dwight, when he was the president at Yale, would often meet with students, and they'd want his counsel on their own spiritual life and how they were moving forward, and they'd want to know from him, do you think a spiritual transformation has happened in my life? And he was always hesitant to to say to them, well, God did this or God did that. He would ask them questions, and he would say to them, are you prepared to serve God? Because he knew that in seasons of revival, there would be all this emotion and there would be all this excitement. And what happens is when the excitement's gone, oftentimes the life change is gone too. Do you know what I mean? So he would say to them, are you willing, are you ready to serve God? He was looking for evidence of their conversion in their everyday life. Isn't that a good word? Like we're looking for evidence of conversion, not just how you feel when you got a quiver in your liver, but in your everyday life. Colin Hansen and John Woodbridge have written a book on revival, and they say this about Dwight in the book. They say, genuine religion transforms the whole person, Timothy Dwight believed. True Christians show kindness, walk humbly, deal honestly, and give generously. That's a good word, isn't it? True Christians show kindness, walk humbly, deal honestly, and give generously, I'll be honest, if if those things aren't happening in your life, I don't wanna hear you talk about revival. That's what revival looks like. It's evidence of conversion in your everyday life. That's why we talk about serving our community We do it more than just July, but in July, we kind of focus on it. Pastor Keith just told you about the summer outreach. You saw the video about how we're going to love the 419, love our world. I hope you'll sign up, jump on the website, go out and pick one of those Saturdays and come out and let your faith be something that's shown. We need an awakening of belief. We need an awakening of prayer. We need an awakening of hope. And here's the fourth one number four, we need a personal awakening not just corporately, not just nationally, not just as a church, but when you and I allow the Holy Spirit to awaken something in us, it changes things. One of the leading figures of that time, and this would be the later half of that revival, really kind of about 1830 to 1840, was a figure named Charles Finney. This is Charles Finney here, quite a looker, isn't he? He's got an 80s mullet and a hipster beard. That's quite a combo going on there. Charles was probably one of the least likely people that you would expect. He was an attorney and an atheist. Said he didn't believe in God. And then he had an encounter with Jesus Christ that changed his life. In the 24 hours after he surrendered his life to Christ, I heard he, he shared his faith with 24 other people in that 24-hour period, and they all made a commitment to Christ as well. <laughs> Like, he was an evangelist right from the get-go. And you can read story after story. His writings still today influence the church. The things that he established during that season of time still influence the church. But he's most known for a six-month period, fall of 1830 to the fall of 1831, referred to as the Rochester Revival. He went to Rochester, New York, and during that season of time, he led six months of, a, of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that were there. There is no more impressive revival in American history They guessed that because of what happened in Rochester, there were 100,000 people who made a commitment to Christ because of what happened in Rochester and what spread out from there during that year. The entire area was profoundly influenced. Taverns closed. The theater, which in that time was a pretty shady place, became a horse stable. The man who ended up being the district attorney stated that after the revival, the crime rate in Rochester dropped by two-thirds and remained that way for years. There was such a transformation that then rippled out. It rippled out from Rochester to the surrounding areas. It became a national outpouring. It became an international awakening. And what happened in 1831 as a result of what started in Rochester, as what started when Charles Finney was willing to be used by God there, literally not only changed 1831, but it still affects who we are and how the church ministers today. Why? because somebody had their life changed in Rochester and somebody else saw it and said, I don't know what happened to them, but I want that to happen to me. Whatever's changed in their life, I want that to happen to me. When I think about, this is me personally, when I think about and and pray about revival, I know there's all kinds of cool stories in history, but I'd like to be a part, I'm praying for the what happened to them revival. I'm praying for the revival where somebody sees their neighbor or their family member or their coworker and go, I know they're a jerk, but they're not anymore. Like what happened to them? Because whatever it is, I want it too. I believe that God wants to use this. What happened to them revival to impact people's lives. How'd it happen? (laughs) My, My favorite story that I, came upon about Charles Finney actually wasn't about what happened during the Rochester Revival, it's what happened just before. Finney was getting some popularity And uh, so he had multiple invitations to go and preach in different cities. Rochester was one of them, but he had invitations from better locations, bigger cities, greater opportunities. There were these chances that he had. So he sat down with some friends and he ran through his different options and he he, he asked them to pray with him about all these different things. And and one night they looked at it all and they kind of looked at it and they said, you know what, Chuck? Uh, Rochester's not your best opportunity. Actually, you should probably go to one of these other places. And he had decided... I'm, I'm turning Rochester down because Rochester was a mess. He'd been invited by the Presbyterian churches in that area. There were three of them and they were all fighting with each other. Like Rochester was just a city that was kind of in a, in a bad spot. And as he looked at things, he says, this doesn't seem like the right place to go. So he went back to his room and as he was there, he, he felt like there was the voice of the spirit that was speaking to him It was funny because he felt like the Holy Spirit kind of said to him, what are the reasons that you don't want to go to Rochester? Well, he was an attorney. He didn't have any problem listing the reasons. He said, here's why, here's why, here's why, here's why. He came up with them real quick. This is everything that's wrong about Rochester and why I don't want to go there. And then he felt the Spirit speak to his heart and say, but are these good reasons? Certainly you are needed at Rochester all the more because of these difficulties. Do you shun the field because there are so many things that need to be corrected, because there's so much that is wrong. Final line, if all was right, you would not be needed. That's a good word, because so many times I'll look at circumstances or situations and say, I don't want anything to do with that. That's a lot of work, that's gonna be difficult. I don't think that's where God wants me. And the Holy Spirit says, but I'm calling you to take a step of faith. I'm calling you to do something new. I'm calling you to speak out my truth. And you say, but it's not a perfect situation. And God says, if it was perfect, would I need you? One life can make a difference. Our history as a nation would be different if Charles Finney had not listened to that voice. And when the voice of God speaks to you are you willing to be obedient and let him do a work of awakening in you and through you? This is the point where a few of you are looking at your watch and saying, I didn't come for a history lesson. I didn't come for this. I got up early, came to church. So far, all he's given me is one lousy scripture. You want a few more? Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Picture this, if you will, that Jesus is coming up, he's got his disciples with him, and here comes the parade out of town to the place where this young boy is gonna be buried. And those that are there would have known him. And so they're mourning. And this mother has already lost so much and now she's lost her son. And it's into this scene that Jesus shows up. A scene that's filled with nothing but hopelessness and a loss of life. Verse 13, and when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Aren't you glad that in your sadness, Jesus' heart goes out to you? That he sees what you're going through? That he knows what frustrates you, what looks dead to you? Verse 14. And then he went up and touched the bier. That's the, the, the thing that they were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Could you imagine that? You're in the crowd and that happens. I read that and I thought, what if I got a spring-loaded casket? It's just people come up and boom, you just kind of pop up. You have a little camera, that'd be funny. I guess I wouldn't know, but I mean, that's just, give me an idea. Verse 16, they were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country kind of sounds like a revival, doesn't it? This is figuratively and literally a story of awakening. Why share it with you? Because in 1808, Timothy Dwight, remember him, president at Yale? He's not quite the looker as Charles Finney, but he's a nice guy. 1808, Timothy Dwight watched how the culture of his college that had seen a revival six years earlier in 1802, had once away begun to turn away from God. And he preached that passage of scripture from Luke chapter seven and said to the students at Yale in that time, I'm challenging you that in your sin and in your sadness and in the darkness of this moment, you need Jesus to touch you and bring an awakening. I thought about that scripture quite a bit. Sometimes, I feel like one of the disciples. How fun would it be to be a disciple on that day? That you're walking up with Jesus, and Jesus performs not just a miracle, like the miracle, raises his kid from the dead, and you're like, I'm with him, got the t-shirt, wanna sign up? Like, that'd be fun. There's days when I'm like, yeah, I'm with him. But sometimes I feel like one of the crowd. Sometimes the thing that I seem to focus on is everything that we've lost, that we've all lost. Sometimes I look at our nation or I look at the big picture church or I look at people in my life and it makes me sad because I see things that once were alive that aren't anymore. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes I feel like one of the crowd. And sometimes I feel like the mother. Sometimes I look at not what we've all lost. Sometimes I spend time thinking about what I've lost. A loved one, a dream, something that I held on to, that just doesn't seem to be there anymore. And if I'm really honest with you, and probably if you were really honest with me, Sometimes I feel spiritually dead like the boy. Sometimes I feel like life's just taking it all out of me. Sometimes I just feel like I don't have anything left. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And in those moments, do you know what you need? You need an awakening to know that in those moments of your loss, whether you're looking at the big picture, whether you're looking at your world, or maybe you're talking about your own heart, that Jesus' heart goes out to you and that the awakening work he did 200 years ago, he can and wants to do in your life and in our world today. If we'll be willing to say just what the psalmist said, Psalm 85, verse six, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Can I ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? And whether you're watching this online or you're seeing it on television or you're sitting in this room, in this moment, are you willing to say, God, would you revive me again? Would you awaken us again? Holy Spirit, would you bring an awakening to our nation, to our leaders, to our lives? That in this moment, God, we need something more from you than just status quo. More from you than just the answers we can come up with. Jesus, we need an awakening. In just a moment, the worship team's gonna lead us in a a song that says, Lord, send revival. And I hope you'll sing that out of the place where your heart is. If you're looking for God to do something new in our nation, then would you sing that and make that your prayer? If you need it in a more personal sense because of what you've lost or where you're at or maybe the state of your heart today, would you sing it and say, Jesus, would you awaken something in me? Would you touch me? Would you do something more? But as we sing this song, especially when we get to that part that says, Lord, send revival," I would challenge you to lift your hands to the Lord, to lift your voice to the Lord, and say, God, would you do something new and fresh and awakening in our day? Something new in our time. Something transformational in my life. Would you stand with me, please? And Father, in these next few moments, We ask that you would send revival. Lord, that you would do something in our hearts. God, that you would make a change in our lives as we look to you. Lord, I pray for the person watching online right now, the person who's watching on television right now. God, would you, by your spirit, just refresh their lives? I pray for the one in this room or in the chapel who needs a refreshing from you today. God, would you stir something new up? Lord, we pray for our leaders, we pray for our nation. God, that you would bring us an awakening. Lord, would you send revival. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Come, Holy Spirit, rain down Break open the heavens and drench the unseen. Pour out Your presence as I pour. Stunning before, would you do it again? Oh, Lost in revival fire.
0: Heavenly Father, that's our prayer. God, that you would send a revival and that you do it through us. Lord, that you would use us to be your agents. That you would remind us the power of what one life can do. Living our lives in a way where faith can be passed from generation to generation. And Lord, that through us, you could bring an awakening of hope and prayer and belief in people's lives. Father, I pray for the one today who needs that awakening from you. Holy Spirit, right now, their tank is empty. They don't feel alive spiritually. They don't feel alive in any way. Lord, would you bring hope to them? Holy Spirit, would you, would you pour out your grace and your faith, your power in their life? Lord, even if it seems hopeless right now, let them know that you are with them would you bring an awakening? Lord, thank you for this reminder today. And even in the worst of times, you are a God who is at work doing things in our lives. So Lord, as we go from here, would you go with us? We ask that you'd send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Happy 4th of July.